welcome. So, um, Phoebe, I was wondering, like, you know, if it's not too personal a question, how many times have you, you know, had COVID? Oh, oh, well, just like this, the same as the number of times I have, you know, I would say at least once. It happened at least once. Definitely not a virgin. It's definitely happened at least once. Um, But I would say, I don't know how many times I've had COVID in all seriousness, because once it was confirmed on all sorts of tests, first rapid, then PCR, because this was when you still needed the proof of recovery to travel, which as they correctly pointed out to me when I was traveling, my proof looked like it was proof that I had COVID. (laughs) It was all a big paperwork mess. Um, But in any case, then like maybe a couple months after that, before it was supposed to be possible, I had a cold where I lost my sense of smell. Maybe that was another COVID. Um, Then there, there have been so I have a child in daycare um, and a baby who goes to a lot of baby activities and I have a cold all the time, like not right the second, this is like a rare um, reprieve, but um, do I know how many of these colds have been COVIDs? I don't. All I know is that I am the smuttiest (laughs) COVID non-virgin around. I should say I have had also four rounds of um, mRNA shot into my not veins shot into my arm so you know one one shot per covid maybe you know keeping things balanced i like that there's you know there's all this because it's a a virus about which so much is still unknown that you know all of your separate covids could in fact have been the same covid just kind of like going into hibernation then coming back out maybe you have one actually not like many covids but just one extra long even magnum sized covid ooh a really really extra big covid well then then i'm especially not covergin coverginal Covidurginal. I don't know. There's how do you? So, Kat, can I ask you an incredibly blunt question? Are you a virgin of COVID? No, I've had it um, as as you experienced. I've had it once for sure. Um, I took a rapid test that lit up like uh, like a Christmas tree. It was very exciting. Were there presents under it? No, there was just a lot of mucus. Yeah, I was going to say mucus is usually yeah, that. Yeah, mm-hmm. lots of mucus. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the first time, what I'm at this point, I'm absolutely confident that this was COVID, not just because it was phenomenologically like one of the weirdest flus slash colds that I've ever had, but it was at the height of Omicron. And um, and then when I got COVID for sure, it basically repeated like symptomatically, the trajectory of it was basically identical. Um, so yeah, I had it uh, back around Christmas time, which was really exciting because that was the moment when first Omicron spike was happening. Omicron was still like the new hotness, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I was very worried about infecting other people, but you could not get a PCR test. And the rapid test, like we had to get like a black market rapid test. Like we had to buy it off of somebody else who had stockpiled them because they were so hard to find. Yeah, it was really just, you know, 
kind of phenomenal how much of like, a series of institutional failures it was surrounding Omicron when it was like, we've been in this for two years. We really should not be struggling to get tested oh, at this point. Oh boy, yeah, Omicron days. That's that's bringing me back. Wow, because I remember, yeah, for us, it was that the daycare kept having these, they would send out these emails. There's been a case, there's been a case. And we were, everybody sort of trying to avoid it. And they, for the first time, and very fleetingly mandated masks for the toddlers. And then everybody in the class got COVID, basically. And all the parents, like everybody, everybody got it. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. Like, I mean, this was one of the few times that I've really been very anxious about the idea that I might have COVID because we were going back to see my parents for Christmas. My parents are elderly. You know, I didn't want to bring something into their house that would hurt them. And so I was on the on the way up to visit them. It was still kind of touch and go. My husband and I managed to find a CVS in kind of like the middle of nowhere up in um, up in the northwest corner of Connecticut, where it's sort of rural and um, and people are not as obsessed with testing themselves every five minutes as they are like in you know the New York City metro area. So we managed to get um, about an hour from my parents' place. We got these tests and we each took one. Um, I like swabbed every part of my body with the same swab. I was like nose, throat, other <laughs> nose, other throat, like just in case. Um, and then when it came up negative, we were like, okay, so whatever this is, it's at least probably not contagious. And we went ahead and went up to their place. So it was funny, like maybe two weeks to three weeks after this bout of who knows what, like not showing up on a rapid test, can't get a PCR. I went to Hereticon where everybody ended up getting COVID except for me. So I think the ultimate heretical move is to not get COVID when everybody else does also. Right, right. I am so different. I am so unique. It's a contrarian approach to infectiousness or something. So today we have a couple of interesting things to talk about. One of them, one of them is COVID virginity, and the other is a really bonkers literary plagiarism drama. But let's let's talk about since we're already talking about COVID. Let's let's talk more about COVID. What's COVID? No. Um, <laughs> so it's this little green particle that goes up your nose. And anyway, um, COVID virginity. So there's a lot of t- discussion about what it is like this sort of split between the very online people and the very offline people or the, the norm- normies, whatever. And I guess where you see that the most might really be COVID, where you where there's this kind of world of people who have never had COVID and can't imagine ever having COVID and still think still in this, the year, whatever, we're in 2020,000 or whatever, um, that you can avoid it if you're just, if you take sensible precautions, reasonable, and you're, and you care about other people, you too can avoid the ubiquitous COVID germ cloud that is everywhere. And yes, this seems to be this ongoing belief very much online that you can just avoid getting COVID if you're uh, sensible about it. Then there's the sort of world of actual people who leave the house who pretty much get COVID unless there's some kind of fluke and they haven't. And even those people, they don't know that they haven't. Right. I think it's very interesting that amongst the people who are convinced still that taking all of these precautions you know masking everywhere avoiding gatherings testing all the time that this is how you avoid covid until you get covid anyway at which point this never seems to represent you know a failure of the mitigation efforts or perhaps the unavoidable fact that 
mitigation efforts just don't do much because this is an airborne virus and it's very sneaky. Instead, it's like, I did everything right, but some bad person did this to me. <laughs> I was infected by somebody who was less vigilant. Or there's the newer version of this, which I've seen more recently, which is this kind of like doomsday scenario, COVID fear, where it's like, people will get COVID who've done everything correctly. You know, how did it happen? Well, it's because COVID has mutated into something that's that needs to be taken really, really, really seriously. And if you take it extra seriously, that's something. I don't know. Like that. that's sort of what I've seen more recently. It's not even like blaming anybody. It's almost like this kind of be really scared in this kind of ambient way that doesn't even... Like it's got, it's almost like mutated from the blame game into the, something just kind of like generically anxious. And I don't know what to do with this. Like I see this, I see people saying like, like I tweeted something like, what does it mean to take COVID seriously now? Because I don't know what it even means anymore because clearly people are getting it, whatever they're doing, um, unless they really are, you know, content to never interact with anybody in person again. And there's a certain number of people who relish the opportunity to never interact with anybody face to face again. And so be it for them. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it seems like beyond the vaccines at this point, and those are, you know, I, I'm holding out hope that they, you know, create ones that like, stop you from getting COVID and so forth. But um, yeah, I don't know, there just seems to be this mood about it, like, there's, there are the people who still, like on my feed, will retweet everything that's like something scary about COVID. They very like earnestly retweet it. And I just wonder, like, what, to, why are you, why? <laughs> like, lots of bad things are happening in the world. Why, what are you hoping to accomplish here? Yeah, I don't know if maybe this is the last gasp of something that I noticed a lot in the early days when everyone was locking down and we just didn't really know very much about the virus, there was a sense of, you know, yes, fear, but also kind of excitement in the way that it's exciting to watch a horror movie or like a zombie movie. And, you know, this prospect that maybe we're witnessing the end of the world as we know it, like maybe this is how it happens. This is the apocalypse. I think that there's something kind of darkly thrilling about that pessimistic outlook. And I think that, you know, nobody really wants to, I should say, I don't think anybody really wants to see the world end, but there's nevertheless something that's you know, like a little titillating about the idea, especially as being the person who took it seriously um, and, you know, who was sort of maximally pessimistic became a stand-in for some sort of kind of virtuous stance. Yes, it definitely seems to correlate with a very specific kind of, I don't even know, is it like a certain register of communication, like a certain tone? Is it a certain politics? I'm not even sure how to classify it, but there's like the way of the people who take things really, really, really seriously. And it seems to, like, you can tell what their politics will be on other things. It's not even a left-right type of politics. It's just like a type of earnestness and I don't even know how to put it and, and it's like a sanctimoniousness it, but but where I think the virginity comes into it and that's why we are um talking specifically about COVID virginity um that and an article we're going to mention as well but it's just this idea that like there's a kind of purity that comes from being the one who who never went inside anywhere without a mask who 
never went inside anywhere during COVID or whatever, you know, and I think it's appealing in the same way as other types of online sanctimoniousness about purity. And that's why I really got a kick out of the Atlantic having an article called America is running out of COVID virgins. <laughs> oh, no. We all are to be sacrificed on the COVID pyre later this afternoon. Um, no, that that I'm adding. That's not in the Atlantic headline. But it really, the headline really is America is running out of COVID virgins. If you haven't gotten the coronavirus, are you a sitting duck by Yasmin Tayag? And, well, seems like her boyfriend's a virgin. Or, sorry, her fiancé. Excuse me. Her fiancé. They're waiting until marriage to infect him with COVID. Definitely. Honeymoon <laughs> special. Um, yes. And nine months later, baby COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Whole new meaning to the term COVID baby. Exactly. Um, yeah. So the gist of the article is like, you should try everything you can to not get COVID. And I, what what's so frustrating about that as a gist is you would think at this point, there would be some sort of cost benefit discussion of the whole like two weeks lockdown versus indefinite lockdown and like what sort of sacrifice we're talking about you know like the you know living your life you only have the one life you know and (laughs) you really want to live it thusly I don't know it's incredible because at this point, you know, given the inevitability of, of contracting COVID, unless you're one of these people who just seems like you can't get it no matter how hard you try. And I, I have one of these in my family and I hate him for it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't. <laughs> it's my brother. I love him. But I am I am mystified, you know, that he's been exposed many, many times. And it's it's just nothing. He's, he's just fine. Apart from the fact that there are people who seem to be predisposed to just not ever contract this virus, or at least not contract it symptomatically or detectably, avoiding COVID is basically like avoiding death. Like you can for a period of time, but it is eventually going to come for all of us. And I think that as as a metaphor or like a comparison or whatever, it's actually pretty apt to suggest that maybe like spending your life prioritizing the avoidance of this thing that is inevitable, you know, that there are costs to that and that maybe we should consider that like it's probably not worth it, you know, to make this your sole priority because all you'll do is ruin your life while staving off the thing that is eventually going to happen to you anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess as far as I'm concerned, I, you know, I am pro vaccine. I wish the vaccines were better, but they are, better than nothing. Um, I think beyond that, at this point, I wouldn't even say like it, it used to be with sort of the early days of COVID, like, oh, if you're privileged, you can isolate. No, I don't think it is at this point a privilege to be somebody who lives a life where they don't have any human interaction. I think that is its own tragedy. Um, and I guess, yeah, you're privileged if you don't have to, have to, have to interact constantly. But, you know, if you have no... <laughs> you know, human contact, that's not so great either. And yeah, I don't know. To me, it just seems like you just eventually, I mean, we're looking at something where especially if you're vaccinated, you will probably be fine. You will probably feel sick when you have COVID. I certainly hope we are not moving towards a world where everybody has COVID every few weeks. But it seems to me like at least I might be in that world and I'm still going outside and doing things (laughs) because... You know, 
Yeah. So this article at one point, and this is the argument being made, you know, for continuing to prioritize the avoidance of COVID, says having to take precautions can be frustrating after so many months of pandemic life, but getting sick can be extremely unpleasant. And I mean, yes, yes, it can, but it always has been. And I feel like there has something has happened in terms of the way that people kind of calculate the worth of a life lived fully and in contact with other people and outside that suddenly the idea of having to experience something unpleasant for a number of days is no longer like that makes it not worth it, basically. It's strange. Yeah. I mean, I think I think what it is, is it's always been the case that if you're severely immunocompromised, if you get a cold, you could die, which is horrible and scary. And I think what's happened is there's, you know, there are a certain number of people who are taking this as an opportunity to say, okay, because that's the case, nobody should ever go outside because you never know who you're inadvertently infecting with something. Now, that's an approach. I don't think it's one that even necessarily everybody immunocompromised thinks is appropriate. Um, It's strange. It's just like, it's this sort of having no sort of value of yeah, like life, like in, in the sense of not just simply being alive, but like doing things with your life. I still don't, my own mask wearing is so completely chaotic. Like talk about chaos. Like sometimes I put one on for this, sometimes not for that. And who knows? And I, I don't, I don't know what you're supposed to do. It's all a blur. It's all like habit, you know, like sometimes I put on a mask to go into a supermarket because that's what I would always do for that supermarket. But then if I duck into a store, I'm not even thinking about it. And I don't, you know, like I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't feel like I even have place in the great big masking culture wars because I just like, I don't even care. I don't know what I'm doing. If I think I have a cold, I'll try to wear one. You know, if I don't think I have a cold, I'll be less likely. I don't know. Also, I recently got to the supermarket and I didn't feel sick or anything like that, but I was going to put on a mask because I wear a mask to the supermarket. And I took this mask out and it had some sort of brown substance all over it. Oh. And I have no idea. I assume it was probably some sort of like either coffee or like decaying food that was fed to either a baby or a toddler. But whatever it was, I decided that I could not put that on. And that was the only one I had. So then I I went in like some sort of trucker protester maskless, which I have done also in the past without it being under such circumstances. But in any case, that was my last attempt at going to the supermarket. Oh, I thought you were going to say that was your last attempt at masking. Well, now now I've gone (laughs) barefaced. I'm never going back. That's that's what I expected would happen. But I feel like it's just chaotic where I like sometimes think, oh, I should wear one for this. Or I just like do it without even... Like that kind of unnerves me, the idea that I'm wearing one not because I want to, but because it's just like habit now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I obviously like I'm not a fan of masks. I find them profoundly uncomfortable. And I had to wear an N95 to get my pelvic exam um, a couple weeks ago. And that was one of the most miserable experiences I've had in recent memory. It's just like, you know, trying to do deep breathing to like keep myself calm during what is a very unpleasant experience. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because I think like if you're gonna if you're gonna wear a mask, like you should wear the one that actually does something. Um, but I felt like I was suffocating, you know, and so that was unpleasant. Yes, I had to wear one for childbirth at first. And then I said I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So I want to just, you know, because I think it's an interesting kind of like 
analogy for COVID and like, you know, virginity and that whole conversation. The one thing I want to say about this, and this is explicitly about masking as like a prophylactic. So the way the way that masking functions for me, one of the reasons that I don't like it is that it basically signals to, you know, to you and to everyone around you that like, there's a sense that anybody you encounter might be infected. And it really reminds me of this old John Carpenter movie called The Thing. Have you ever seen this? No. Um, okay, so the, the premise of this movie, just to quickly sum it up, is you've got a bunch of people, um, like researchers in the Arctic, they encounter an alien life form that can basically assimilate a human body and then like take the form of the person that it just ate. So it's a monster that looks like somebody you know, and you can't tell the difference. And they become, obviously, you know, in this isolated location when anybody could be infected with this thing that makes them like a, like a killer creature, they all become very suspicious of each other there's a sense of like we don't know who we can trust any one of us could be infected you could be infected and not know it um and it's not good for people to live like that that's why it's a horror movie you know that's like Mm -hmm. what makes it scary um and to try to keep that not only at a sustained level but to start to kind of reorganize your society and all of your social interactions so that there's this layer of fear on top of it all the time um, I really think is very corrosive, and it's it's a reason why I hope that people stop masking eventually. What about if you are sick? See, that's that's where I get a little thrown off because, like, the sort of you might have COVID, you might not state is one that I spend a lot of time in, just because of having so many colds. And it seems like a lot of the times when I'm wearing a mask, it's that it's that I'm sick, not that I think you know, like I'll have tested negative. Or I just like can't really tell if I have a cold, so I haven't even tested yet. And, but yeah, I don't know. Like that's where I think it's iffiest is like if you yourself have it. I think it's different if it's this kind of like you know wearing the cloth mask of, as a symbol of which side of the culture wars you're on. But I don't know. That's where I'm a little stuck. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's unfortunate because masks have taken on this incredible amount of like moral and political baggage that's completely divorced from their effectiveness as a mitigation measure, which is, you know, I mean, that's all we ever really should have cared about. And it seems like it's the thing that people care about the least at this point. Um, You know, wearing a mask is mainly about signaling that you care. Um, And, you know, I I wish if we were going to signal that we care, that we had chosen something that's maybe like, a little less obtrusive, isn't so shitty to wear at the gym. But I think, you know, at this point, I don't know, I'm of two minds about it. I think it's perfectly normal and, you know, reasonable and responsible if you are sick and you want to take precautions to wear a mask, um, you know, an effective one. At the same time, I also feel kind of like at this point, the vaccines are available to anybody who wants them. If you want to take extra measures to protect yourself from COVID, that's entirely up to you. But that it's not a bad idea to revert back to the way that we have lived, you know, in, we live in a society um, where, you know, no, we don't prioritize avoiding infecting other people with, you know, the flu or whatever, unless there's somebody in your life who specifically you're trying to take precautions surrounding. But like we don't we don't walk around worried about 
how our individual actions are going to impact other people to this extent. And I mean, that's not just true of how we deal with the possibility of getting somebody else sick. It's like anytime I get into my car and go for a drive, I am running the risk that I might seriously injure or kill somebody else by getting into an accident. Like, I mean, there's all of these things that we do day to day that statistically add to other people's risk. But that's just kind of the price of doing business. So unless we want to completely remake society, and I don't even know what it would look like to to reimagine our priorities in this way. Um, but unless we want to do that, then I don't know that COVID should be like a special exception at this point. Well, fair enough. Uh, are we? Is this a public episode? Yes. Well, then in that case, we have a substack to which you can subscribe. Oh, yeah. Let's do some housekeeping. Speaking of housekeeping, what reminded me of housekeeping is while you were uh, talking about COVID just then, Bizu, my poodle, came downstairs and started eating up the cheese that the baby had dropped from the high chair really methodically. So doing some really good housekeeping, but leaving the blueberry. Oh, wow. What's wrong with the blueberry? Does it have COVID? Yep. Okay. <laughs> COVID blueberry. <laughs> the blueberry variant. <laughs> so yeah, uh, if you are enjoying Feminine Chaos so far, and it's still not over, um, but if you like it so far, please consider subscribing to us on our Substack at femchaospod.substack.com, where for $5 a month, you will get early access to all of our public episodes, as well as exclusive access to premium content that is only for paying subscribers. Ooh la la. Yeah, those are also the people we like best. So, you know. Yes, that's right. Um, And I think we might have something extra special to talk about, though. Extra um, wild. Yeah, from, from COVID virgins to serial plagiarists. Okay, Phoebe, tell me, have you ever heard of a writer named Jumi Bello? No, I've heard of an ice cream brand called Chow Bello or Bella that exists in the States. Is it related to that? Easy mistake to make, but no. Okay. (laughs) So this story made some waves online amongst literary people because it just seemed like a really wild incident of plagiarism on top of plagiarism. This writer, Jimmy Bellow, who was supposed to be kind of the next big thing, had her novel canceled. And it was under sort of mysterious circumstances. There were some whispers that there had been some kind of scandal. Uh, Then she writes an apology in LitHub for having plagiarized portions of her book. Then, as this essay is circulating, somebody notices that she's plagiarized a portion of her apology for plagiarism. (laughs) And it was so meta. Obviously, there was just an enormous amount of chatter about this. But it became complicated and it became convoluted because Jumi Bello is a young Black woman who also has schizoaffective disorder uh, or some kind of mental illness. It's sort of it's sort of unclear. This is this is what it says in this article that she has. Okay, so the article we're talking about, it's called Under the Influence. Jumi Bello was on track to be a major writer until her debut novel was dropped amid rumors of plagiarism. What happened is a tale as complex as anything she appropriated. This is an airmail by Johanna Berkman. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So right. So Jumi Bello, young black, non-neurotypical 
writers. She's multiply marginalized, which in the literary community obviously means quite a lot. Can I just interject a question here? Yes. Is having a mental illness that specifically manifests itself as plagiarizing and serially plagiarizing and just keeping on and on and on and on with the plagiarizing, plagiarizing what you write about your plagiarizing. Is that not about the same as if you had a specific disability that prevented you from writing well, let's say? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be a very specific form of marginalization where it's like, like you can't do the long jump if you can't jump? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, this is fast forwarding a little bit to one of my takes on this, but I, I do think this is one of the things that's interesting is that this is fundamentally a story about a novelist who doesn't know how to write. She can't write. That's her problem. And her solution to her problem, unfortunately, has not been to seek another line of work, but rather to kind of cheat her way through the line of work that she's chosen. All of this drama surrounding Jumi Bello and her plagiarism and then her apology for plagiarism happened a while back. This was, I believe, in the spring. But as it turns out, even though this was a big deal and then there was sort of like a backlash to the backlash, where as people started realizing that there was plagiarism in the apology for plagiarism, so this is from the article. Soon some of the discourse was breaking down along racial lines with many BIPOC writers hastening to her defense. Quote, this industry is not safe for black neurodivergent writers and the people in power are not interested in making it safe, tweeted the best-selling novelist Akweke Emezi. I probably mispronounced that, sorry. Uh, when it goes well, everyone and their mama was now involved, but when it goes to shit, it's only the author who takes the fall. Another tweet, White people who are excited and happy to be cruel and judgmental towards a black woman who's obviously struggling, you're showing yourself. That was from Therese Marie Milo, author of the best-selling memoir, Heart Berries. So Jumi Bello, it turned out that this was not her first plagiarism rodeo. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She graduated in 2021. Um, for those not in the know, Iowa Writers Workshop is one of the most prestigious MFA programs for creative writing that you can get into. As it turns out, she had a little bit of a plagiarism problem even back when she was in this workshop. And before that, she wrote a poem that turned out to be plagiarized from somebody else. Even in the context of her education within the writer's workshop, there was at the time a real desire to see her succeed, which you see echoed also in her publishing journey where, you know, she like got this huge advance. Um, she was acquired by Cal Morgan at Riverhead. It's very prestigious. Cal's a big deal. You know, he's like, this is going to, you're going to be our breakout star, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, everyone really, really wanted to see her succeed. Not least because she is a young black woman in this industry where there has been like a real dearth of voices like hers. So that's something I wanted to ask about. How much of this is the story of somebody being sort of set up to fail? Somebody who was never, I mean, this is, wrong to use a term like qualified since it's not like she needed some kind of like certificate like to you know fix a sink or something like to have some sort of skill certificate you know saying she has a license but how much of this is that somebody was given opportunities beyond their capabilities 
and screwed over that like that and it before anybody's like ooh, like isn't that offensive to say i have been in a situation while i am you know i don't have the sort of ambition slash psychosis that would have led down this road but when i was in college um in you know the year 1600 um did well on some math placement tests because who knows and they put me into some like really complicated calculus class that was where you had to do proofs, which is something I could not do. I could not do it. I had a friend from my dorm who was a guy. He was also placed into this class. He also could not do it. We were just struggling, struggling, struggling. But the math professor was a woman and she really liked the idea of a woman. Um, I wasn't the only female student. There was one other who did great and like majored in math and stuff. And she really, but this professor really, really, really wanted me to stay in the class. And I was just like, like, I'm trying, I can't, I can't, like my brain cannot do this. But I could see how there is this thing where like the will for somebody to do something that would be unexpected for their identity can get you in a bad spot. And like I said, there was another woman in the class. She was great at math. It's not that a woman can't be great at math. I am a woman and I am not great at math. And what you're saying is you're not great at math because you're a woman. My gender makes it impossible for me to add simple numbers together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bitches be shopping, but not doing math. And then I, you know, I just, I go to Uniqlo and I accidentally spend a hundred thousand dollars on a pair of socks. And then I'm like, how did that happen? I am a woman. Be- I have no idea. Yeah, it's because you can't do math. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. But so, I mean, I'm wondering, like, to bring it back to the story, like, how much is that Bella was put into this situation? So, at first, that was kind of my feeling, was that, like, okay, she was put in this situation by this society that, like, wanted somebody with her characteristics to be, a, you know, in this role. But then the more I read, and especially about, like, just how long this went on for, it, it seemed... Like it's, is more, there's more going on than that. Like she had a much more active role in this. Like this was more than just some sort of coping mechanism, but then, sorry, I'm, I realize I'm digressing, but then the other thing I'm wondering is like, isn't it just much harder to do pastiche on that level? Like the, the structure of what she was doing, the plagiarism wasn't that she was like, she found some obscure novel that nobody ever talks about and put her name on it. She was making these like intense pastiche things with all these different seg- like altered segments of other works. Like, doesn't that sound just like extremely strenuous and like harder, not necessarily harder creatively, but just like, I don't know why you would do that. I guess. I can absolutely understand why someone would do that if they were not capable of creating organically, creating prose organically. And I mean, I, I'll go searching for, like in a first person account, for instance, of an experience that I haven't had. If I need to include something like that in a novel, I'll read multiple first person accounts. Um, for instance, like in my in my last book, I wrote about a woman who experiences a miscarriage because of placental abruption. You know, basically she falls, the placenta detaches from the uterus and that's that, the baby dies. Um, so to do this, I went and I like I spent a lot of time online reading first person accounts from women who've experienced this, reading first person accounts from women who've experienced other miscarriages, looking at like photographs, like 
that people took with their stillborn babies, um, reading medical stuff about how this happens. And I didn't put any of this directly into the book. I put it, I ran it through like the translation device that exists in my brain that, you know, combines all of this stuff together and then out comes something that's original to me that is prose. You never considered perhaps making the plot be instead about kidney donation. (laughs) That's a deep cut. Yes. No. Um, And please do listen to our episode about the bad art friend, which is a kidney donation drama saga that is. I had to. I, I had to. I'm sorry. No, it's I mean, that's that's such an even a better literary scandal than this one, even though this one involved like a lot more money and more high profile ruination. Um, But anyway, the point is just that, like, were I not able to do that? I absolutely would would end up just, you know, dumping this stuff into the text and saying, well, I'll, you know, I'll fix this later, which is what she says she did. And like, I could certainly see that you lack the capacity to to make this thing. Um, you know, to, to, to bake it in your head and have something new and original come out. Instead, you just throw all the ingredients into the text and think, you know, like some, like there's going to be some kind of alchemy at some point, like Mm. I'll fix this or even nobody will notice, or even this is just another way of doing this. You know, surely this isn't that different from what other writers do, which is, I mean, writing is a very solitary activity. Everybody does it in their own way. So if you're struggling with it and you think you found a solution, I do think that it's entirely possible to talk yourself into the idea that this is probably just a thing that people do, that it's just as legitimate as another way of creating. Well, it's interesting because so there had been this viral tweet, um, viral as in like really, um, made fun of rather roundly and cruelly and perhaps not unjustly I, where um, somebody doesn't matter who tweeted that somebody with a big Twitter profile, I, I believe tweeted that it's ableist to expect writers to read books. Ah, yes. Do you remember this? <laughs> I do. I and do. It was kind of funny and kind of <laughs> ridiculous, but I guess what was, sort of striking here is that here's somebody who is in certain like with Bello, you get somebody who is like, in a way, a really good student, like really, really versed in text, you know, reading a ton, and reading appropriate things for her interests, you know. But just like, yeah, there's this sort of it's the level of the creativity, the writing that's missing. So here you have the writing without the reading, and then you have the reading without the writing. And I realize I'm self plagiarizing here because I tweeted about this, that this um, was, you know, what happens when you have the writer who does read what can happen? Because if the writer doesn't read, you're not going to have all of these texts from other people. You're just going to have the perhaps somewhat aimless blather of the, you know, non-reading writer. Mm-hmm. I, I think about this a lot because I avoid reading certain types of books if I'm working on one that's in the same vein because I'm worried that I may accidentally internalize something, um, you know, and, and end up reproducing something that is going to be akin to theft. Um, at the same time, you know, I certainly crib like plot structure, you know, things that are more about um, sort of the mechanics of putting things together as opposed to the actual language. And it's it's an interesting, very kind of blurry line. And I think that everyone has to negotiate this. Like we all run the risk of, 
internalizing snippets of things that we've read um, and then reproducing them even unwittingly. Like if there's a great phrase stuck in your head, like, are you sure that you came up with that yourself? Like, are you sure you haven't regurgitated it from having read it some time ago? And this is even spoken to in the piece. She talks about rereading the opening pages of The Leaving, which is Bellow's novel that was canceled. Um, She says, the first time I read it, this is a sentence she's talking about. The first time I read it, I had thought it felt familiar in the way that good writing often does. But now I'm not so sure. I Google it and the first result is a link to Rebecca Solnit's Recollections of My Non-Existence, a 2020 memoir that contains this line and there's a similar line. But it was that thing about how it felt familiar in the way that good writing often does. I think that that's a real thing. We get caught in these echoes of things that resonated with us because they were beautiful, you know, because there was like an exquisitely crafted sentence. And it's entirely possible for a writer to regurgitate stuff like that. But that said... This is part of the job. Um, And I do think that what Bellow came up with was ultimately a workaround for a dearth of skill. I think this is not a craft thing. I think she's literally not capable of putting ideas from a variety of sources into her head. An important question. So why be a writer then when there are other, you know, lines of work out there? Do you think it's that she was set up with all of this glory if she went ahead with it? Do you think it was that she just has this sort of innate will to make things up? Do you think, like, do you think this was the equivalent of the plagiarism of some, of a student who has a term paper due the next day? Or do you think that there's some sort of thrill in getting away with it? I don't know if it's any of those things. And you know, I mean, I, I'm reluctant to speculate about what was happening in her head. I like, uh, But I look at the factual aspects of this. Like, what, what can we say for sure? We can say that she sought out this opportunity. Mm-hmm. She initially tried to write poetry. It was discovered that she'd plagiarized the poetry. She sought then to pivot to a career as a novelist. Um, even if she was offered these opportunities, nobody shoved her into them. You know, she at every turn accepted them, sometimes chased them. And I don't know if this was so much a conscious quest to get away with something as it might have been a delusion that she actually was doing it. You know what, that seems the likeliest from my reading of um, this article is really just that here's somebody who like the, the quotes from her about what she was doing seem like, like Bello just seems like she really genuinely doesn't get why this was a problem in a way. Like there's just something she doesn't get about. Like it doesn't even read like making excuses as much as it reads about like not understanding what originality means. You know what I mean? Like it, it just, I don't know. There just seems like some sort of block, you know, like, yes. Yeah, that's, I guess what I'm also trying to figure out. So first of all, I think it might be worth noting that the um, <laughs> the final line of this article is Jumi Bello is now working on a memoir. That's amazing. So she's not, um, she's not canceled. No, no. Or she's certainly not self-canceled at this point. And I guess like what I'm trying to figure out now is like, what are the bigger, like, bigger picture publishing or cultural even better yet um 
question like what what's going on here and the part that's really striking is this whole thing about like the identity based uh taking of sides right like that that was interesting and was very much like this sort of kidney gate thing where um a writer has behaved badly and but has but falls on the marginalized side of things thus you know excuses must be found and yeah, I don't know. That that was weird. Yeah, well, Roxanne Gay had something to say about this. Yes, of course. Um, you know, okay, so this is another line. So Gay says that backstage, she told Bello, white people plagiarize all the time and they face consequences, but there is generally a path for redemption. We should be able to have that too, but oftentimes we don't. It's in your best interest to own up to what you did without trying to justify it because running from it will only make things worse. After... Bello's essay was retracted, Gay wrote on Twitter, Jumi Bello isn't the villain of your gossip. She made mistakes. Surely there's a space for redemption at some point. I look forward to her next book. I hope someone lets her write it. I really think that, I mean, I think that Gay is grossly overstating um, the prevalence of plagiarism generally. I mean, I really do think that most authors do not do this. And diminishing the stigma. I mean, the people who have plagiarized and sort of returned, whenever they return, everybody's like, oh, right, it's that one who plagiarized. It's that one who plagiarized this, you know? (laughs) Yes. I don't think people forget these things. I'm just like, I mean, a lot of examples are coming to mind of people who've plagiarized things. And um, yeah, when they when they resurface, every, everybody talks about it. And it, even if they are white, I don't think there's any particular, you know, leniency there. But yeah, I guess I just wonder, are they doing not just Bello personally, but really just like writers of color generally a disservice by saying like, oh, well, you know, that's a, a lower standard is needed. Right, it's that soft bigotry of low expectations thing. It's a little ridiculous. Like, obviously, most writers of color also are not doing this because this is the very specific behavior of somebody with a whole bunch of issues. Um, and I, I feel like it may seem like the nicer thing to say, like, go for it, write another book, you can do it, you can do it. But it's like, I mean, it's like me in the math class, like, no, no, she can't, she demonstrably can't do it, you know, and that's fine. She can do something else. I'm not saying that she should be like canceled and unemployable. I'm saying that I think, you know, she probably should not be a writer in any genre because this just does not seem to be something that she understands how to do in a way that is like, she's obviously a very good reader, you know, she's just not somebody who, um, creates new things with her words oh my gosh this actually reminds me so much of how there is this quest to kind of like excuse away these things that basically should preclude a person from doing this kind of work um and it reminds me of there was a recent plagiarism scandal in journalism i think it was a usa today reporter um with a similar profile she was a young woman of color was found that she had i believe um plagiarized or fabricated an enormous number of quotes, something like, you know, just cardinal sins that you don't, you don't do these things when you're a journalist. Um, And there was a very viral tweet thread from a woman who was a, a journalism professor. And she said, in my few years as a journalism educator, I found that the younglings 
just want to pause on that. We're talking about an adult, by the way, but the younglings engage in unethical practices, i.e. fabricating quotes, etc., mostly out of desperation mixed with inexperience, almost never laziness or nefarious intent. Their failure to meet standards says as much about the unmanageable pressure they deal with and the little support slash guidance they have as their personal shortcomings. And I really want to kind of pause on that, on this notion that you should be allowed to be a writer and you should be allowed to take a stab at it over and over again, even as you're doing things that writers are not allowed to do. Because if you didn't mean anything by it, then it should be okay. It's like, well, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that they were lazy. It wasn't that they were like trying to get away with something. It's just, they just can't do it. That's a good sign. Just as much as having nefarious intent that you shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be doing something that you can't do. I also want to talk about the reason why you can't do that and who the victims are here. And if you're plagiarizing other marginalized writers and stealing from them, well, you know, that's not so great either. It's true. So the victims here are not, you know, it's not necessarily the great sort of, punch up as it were and all that either so yeah I mean the reason plagiarism is frowned upon is because it's the same as any other theft but all the more so because it's you know intellectual property it's you know somebody else's writing and thoughts and all that so yeah and I, I guess I almost wonder whether with the proper sort of guidance Bella would be better at a different type of writing now I'm gonna like contradict what I said that she shouldn't do any kind of writing but maybe if she did something like academic writing where she was citing these things because she seems like she does have good like sort of the makings of good research skills but I think Mm -hmm. you do need but then I do just keep coming back to you need a certain amount of integrity that seems rather glaringly missing whether by will or by um illness or who knows but yeah i think that maybe part of this is writing is such a tricky field because it's hard to get past this notion that it's something everyone can technically do you know and then the question of what makes somebody good at it or good enough to have a job doing it what merits being paid for your writing is very nebulous it's not like you know, if you can't play basketball, nobody's going to offer you a shot at the NBA. Like you'll eventually be eliminated no matter how fun it would be to see you in there for reasons that have nothing to do with like how good a basketball player you are. Like there's a real, there's a real dearth, for instance, of like five foot three white ladies in the NBA. Um, but were I to try to go and and play basketball, I would not be allowed in there just because it would be cool to see me running around in a uniform and like, you know, yay representation because I can't play basketball. Um, But, you know, there's no objective measure in the same way when it comes to writing because everybody technically knows how to construct a sentence. And so the market is in a way the objective measure, like you are a professional writer if you are paid for your writing. But then if there's paid how much and it, or if you're living off other things too, as even very successful writers very frequently are because of how badly writing pays, it's tricky. And then here you have somebody who's gotten, so with Bello, you have somebody who's gotten a lot of validation, you know? 
So mm-hmm. somebody who's writing their like angsty teen poetry and then fancies that themselves a writer, but has no sort of real world reason to think that they're going to be one is different, I think, from somebody who has gotten an Iowa MFA and a really large book contract, you know, all these things are like concrete evidence in the world that there are people who think you are an important writer, you know, that I think, so this idea that like anybody might think this, I think most people just are stopped by the fact that like, there's no external validation. So you can put whatever you want, you know, on your live journal or Substack or whatever, you know, and you can try, but if, if you're not earning any money from it or getting any kind of sort of professional validation from it, then you just like, that's just not your job and that's just how it is, you know? And then I think here you have somebody who like on paper was doing great, but then it's just, yeah. <laughs> on, on paper is an interesting way of... Except for, but on paper, but on paper was also doing quite poorly. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, this is, I guess, where the question of was she set up to fail comes in. You know, I think that what's most likely is that she was genuinely did not have a realistic understanding of how ill-suited she was to doing this type of work. You know, that the way she was doing this work was not appropriate and it's not, you know, it's just not a way you can be as a writer. But then the delusion was reinforced at every turn by people who really wanted not just her work, but her person, you know, somebody who checked these boxes to be elevated. Oh my goodness. I just thought of what this is like. (gasps) What? It's like Rachel Dolezal or something because somebody who sort of like is posing and like looking the part and nobody wants to question this. Do you see what I mean? Like, it's not obviously the same situation. Like I don't think anybody is questioning that, um, that Jumi Bello is black. This idea of like, there are certain people where sort of the right thinking liberal thing would be don't question, don't question. Right. Not only don't, not only don't question, but support. Yes. And sort of, if you have doubts, if your gut is telling you that something's off here, maybe you're, you're the bigot and you shouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting quest even now to assign blame for what really was an individual failing on the part of this writer um, to everybody who failed to kind of save her from herself or who enabled her in the idea that she could do this. And I have mixed feelings about that because I do think that it was irresponsible for, for instance, the Iowa Writers Workshop, and this is this is one of the kind of like just jaw-dropping, many jaw-dropping moments in the piece, you know, Bella was already having issues with plagiarism at that time. And yet there was, I don't want to say a conspiracy, but uh, an organized effort to elevate her. They had decided in advance, the people in the Iowa Writers Workshop, and, and they sent this email that unfortunately was sent to everybody. So sort of like pulled the cover off of this plan. They decided that she was their star. She was going to be their star. And it really had a lot to do with the fact that she fit the profile of the person they wanted to elevate. And whether her work backed that up was kind of a, a distant second thought. And I do think that there's you know moments like that 
where you can say, okay, like here's a place where this woman was not served by the people who were in a position to act as not just mentors, but gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, I, I don't think she should write a memoir, but it sounds like that's already happening. So doesn't matter. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, she she tried poetry. She plagiarized. What, do, what will poetry. be the next genre? Well, I mean, if her memoir turns out to be plagiarized, um, I don't know. Maybe she can write TV jingles. Yeah, I was going to say, like, maybe she could write like a TV show and it could turn out that it's actually like the simpsons she's just like written the simpsons <laughs> oops <laughs> and if it doesn't work out there's always uh there's always kidney donation all right anything else to say about this uh very exciting story which again everyone should read it's in airmail which is Graydon carter's new newsletter and the author who did a fantastic job of reporting out is johanna berkman yes um i would say that we're going to plagiarize anything make it be your certificate of covid virginity and my advice is if you're gonna get covid don't plagiarize get a new variant don't do the same old thing no no a reinfection is self-plagiarism and also sloppy seconds that too (laughs) this has been feminine chaos oh yes (laughs) (laughs) bye bye